Hello and welcome to Rick Radio Community News Desk, episode 56. I'm Mick Hanley. I hope you had a lovely St. Patrick's weekend and Mother's Day. Well, this week, our history presenter, Tora Kelly, talks with renowned historian Donald Fallon, the presenter of the famous Tree Castles Burning podcast. Donald talks about the past, present and future of the Docklands. The Docklands, as you said, hugely important socially and culturally and, and uh, economically to this part of Dublin. But... There's some dispute over the extent of the Docklands and, you know, it's almost a brand name now, but where does it, what what constitutes the Docklands to you? Uh, Dubliners in centuries past would have had a a very different idea of what the docks were or where the port of Dublin was, for example. So if you think back, I think a good way to position the docks in our minds is where we pass under the Loopline Bridge. You know, that great mm-hmm. controversial architecture. I don't know how, how people feel about it. I like it personally. I kind of like yeah, it. I think yeah. it's like this great part of the Victorian age. You know, the, the railway was connecting people in, in new ways. But when you pass underneath the, the very divisive Loopline Bridge and you see the Custom House, I mean, when you look at 18th century illustrations of the Custom House, you just have ships right up against it. And when you're down there, you can, you can still see, you know, how they would have mm-hmm. been tied up beside it. So... For me, when I think about what was the working docks of Dublin, I mean, up there on the roof of the Custom House, you have Lady Commerce on her dome roof looking down. She would have once been looking down over a, a busy you know, place of, of trade and arriving ships. So, yeah, if we, if we think about the docklands as beginning there at, at Gandon's masterpiece at the Custom House, uh, bringing us all the way down to kind of two great historic communities uh, on either side of the river, East Wall on one side and Raytown, you know, Rings End on the other for me, that's the heart of Dublin's Docklands. Mm-hmm. And there, even if the, the river itself is a big divide, I guess there's, there's certain com- commonalities either side of, of the river in terms of how people live their lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting to think about Dublin historically. If you look at a map of Dublin and ask yourself, what did they do in different places? So mm-hmm. I, I walked here today. Uh, I live in, in Black Pits in the Liberties area. And that would have been tanning and, and once upon a time weaving would have been a big thing in that part of Dublin and brewing. Every part of the city has its own historic industries, but certainly on both sides of the river, these two kind of working class communities, East Wall and Rings End, there have been real commonality in terms of what men were doing for a living. And some of that work, I suppose, was precarious in a sense that you, what that means is you aren't guaranteed work every day. You know, fellas mm. who showed up, casual laborers, may have got a day's work, may not have got a day's work, but for some families, it was unionized work and it was good regular mm. work. So, yeah, within, even within these communities, just because you were a docker, that didn't mean you had the same paycheck every week. You know, for some people, work even down here in what was once a very busy dock and port was still, as it was for so many people in Dublin, very precarious. I mean, if you compare Dublin with Belfast, mm-hmm. Belfast was a city that had great industry. It had shipbuilding for men that was massive. It had, uh, for women, it had a, a great tradition of linen. Uh, Dublin didn't really have those enormous industries. Mm-hmm. We had one very successful brewery. Yeah. <laughs> that was more or less it in a biscuit factory. So in these communities, I suppose, the nearest thing you got to, to regular work was the was the, the, the dock workers. And the, do- the dock workers preservation society down here have done so much work in trying to capture that. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, one of the classical things about Dublin, I suppose, is that it wasn't as heavily industrialized as Belfast. So when we think about the docks being hugely important economically to the city, um, are we talking about major volumes of, of trade or a big economic importance or was it more uh, kind of important to sustaining these communities? Well, if we think about why does Dublin emerge as the Irish capital, what makes mm -hmm. Dublin so important? It's its location. And it's all in the name. You know, Dove Lynn, mm -hmm. the, the Blackpool, where the Liffey meets the Poddle. The fact that we're right there on the eastern coast of the island. Uh, why is Belfast important? Belfast is important because it's so close to Glasgow. You know, mm -hmm. Harland & Wolf, the, the company that built the Titanic, they almost began life uh, in Glasgow. I mean, it was, it was touch and go where they, would, where they would establish themselves. For Dublin, I think that proximity to Liverpool was incredibly important. So this side of the island, if you will, if, if mm -hmm. Ireland existed in that colonial relationship with Britain, this side of the island benefited economically from that to some extent. So yeah, the importance I think of Dublin uh, port was its, its proximity to Liverpool, its proximity to the neighboring island. And for the little success stories that there are in Ireland in terms of agriculture, you know, moving livestock uh, from this island to the neighboring island, a lot of people have great memories from all the way over on the North Circular Road or through Stony Batter, which was known as, you know, Cowtown once upon mm -hmm. a time, uh, of livestock being moved into the, into the docks, into the port of Dublin. So whatever was being exported, whatever Ireland could offer to the empire and the world yeah. beyond mm -hmm. its own shores, it made its way down through these, these communities. Now, our listeners would have heard on our intro there, the famous local character, Lyrics Murphy, talking about how he loved to see the ships coming in from all parts of the world. And we think of Dublin being kind of quite an insular and backward place then, but it must have been extraordinary to see, you know, uh, you know, cargo ships and such and so forth coming from very exotic locations um, and just to kind of rub up against that. Um, yeah, I remember, I mean, thank God for the statute of limitations. I remember <laughs> interviewing um, former dock workers a few years mm -hmm. ago, I was involved in a thing called Around the Table, which was an oral history of food. And we were well into it, actually. We've been interviewing kind of people who worked in cafes and restaurants in the city and the fruit markets. We were well into it before someone had the great realization. Talk to the, the dock workers. Yeah. It made obvious sense. I mean, mm -hmm. the story of food really begins with what they were importing uh, and unloading. So in a time before uh, containerization, you know, these yeah. lads were talking about the great excitement of very exotic foods, you know, fruits that you'd never see before mm -hmm. uh, arriving into, into Dublin. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? And they talked about how, you know, whatever the middle class had. They never had the same variety of fruit on the table as the children in Ringsend and East Wall. And I love that, you know. Yeah. And that old joke, you know, it fell off the back of a lorry. That was, that was often, utter, often uttered. But yeah, it's extraordinary to think about how it's a two-way system, really, isn't it? The exportation of food and livestock, sometimes with tragic consequences. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Christian Moore has that beautiful poem on a single day. And it talks about what left the port of Dublin on yeah. a single day in 1847 as people were starving. You know, you have the exodus of food and agriculture going out of the port, but you also have this story of what's arriving in uh, to the country and what's being offloaded by by local men. Yeah, I heard actually there's there's a a great trope, I suppose, of, of nicknames that Dockers had because people were known by their by their nicknames. Um, but one of the one of the best ones I came across was the chap who was known as Diesel because uh, he was known for uh, picking up bits of cargo and saying Diesel do for the wife. <laughs> <laughs> really? Like one guy had emigrated uh, to New York City, as so mm -hmm. many Irish people had done before him, decided it wasn't for him, came back after 
a couple of weeks, maybe two <laughs> months, and he was the Yank. Yeah. So <laughs> you could be you could be stuck with it with a nickname. And uh, nicknames in in the docks seem to be intergenerational. Yeah. So yeah. your grandfather could have said something stupid once upon a time, and you know that followed you uh, around. But there was a huge intergenerational aspect to. I mean, I mean, the the button as as actually you might just explain a little bit about the button and its significance. Yeah. So the the way you got work in the docks, it was a, a process known as the reed. Mm-hmm. where men would gather uh, on a single morning and you would essentially have a, a, a selector whose job it was, you know, we need 40 laborers today. And then you have this tragic spectacle where there might be 250 men who want the mm-hmm. day's work. How do you break that down into the numbers that are, are required? And the system that was introduced, the, the button through the unions, uh, essentially meant that certain families through length of service to the, to the, mm-hmm. to the, to the profession or through involvement in the union or a combination of both, were given these badges that entitled them to preferential uh, selection. So that brought some regularity yeah. for some families, but it made a precarious situation even worse uh, for others. So if you weren't in, in that sense, I mean, the, the preference was button men, as they were known, the children of button men, and then the general mass of, of, of workers. And if you're at the bottom of that pile, getting a day's work uh, was incredibly difficult. Yeah. And this, this is in the days before the the kind of the the modern conception of of the welfare state such as it is in Ireland so uh you were you were kind of screwed if you didn't get a day's work absolutely i mean mm-hmm. the the precarity of work in dublin right through the 20th century is incredible mm-hmm. and then you think about what were the big employers of women uh the factories in dublin like jacobs uh, which was not far from where i live actually in the in the kind of inner city area bishop street and capri's which was just across the river from here mm-hmm. in east wall all those factories moved out into the new suburban hinterlands yeah. in the 60s and 70s. That took a lot of work from women uh, in these parts of Dublin. And yeah, eventually with the docks, there was similar tragedy with containerization. Mm-hmm. They just didn't need the number of men anymore that they needed in the mm-hmm. past uh, to unload to unload goods and cargo. I suppose the reason that, that they achieved any kind of union recognition was that this was extremely skilled labour for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. And the unions... If you go back to the day of Connolly and, and Larkin, before the 1913 lockout, when I suppose the, the union had a, a... When Larkin arrives in Dublin from Belfast mm. in, in, in 1908, I suppose the vision that he has, they very quickly recognise that this is one of the principal areas uh, worth focusing in, uh, in yeah. on and worth organising in. And there's massive class tension uh, in the lead up to the 1913 lockout in the Dockland communities. And remember, James Connolly had been a, a union organiser and still was in Belfast at that time. So he knew how important those kind of workers were. And it was a place of, of real tension, real class tension, uh, right through the, that revolutionary period and beyond. And actually, when you look at that time, they were some of the only workers in the country who had the actual power to intervene in the mm. war of independence in yeah. a very real way, you know, by refusing to, to handle uh, munitions and by refusing to offload cargo uh, for the British military. So... Yeah, I mean, withdrawing your labour is a great threat if you live in Salford or Manchester or yeah, <laughs> in the early 20th century. If Paddy threatens to withdraw his labour, it's not such a great threat, but it certainly is when, when dock workers threaten to do it, and they did do it. And was, were the Dublin docks kind of an important uh, economic engine or economic driver or resource even for the UK before independence? Or were they of relatively low importance compared to the kind of English ports? Oh, they had fallen enormously. Yeah. They had fallen enormously. So in the 18th century, when when Gandon constructs the, the Custom House and mm-hmm. Beresford, the revenue commissioner who brings Gandon uh, to our... That's a real coup, you know, bringing mm-hmm. this very fashionable architect of the empire to Dublin. 
they have a vision of the development of the port and how important it will be in the future. But, you know, in the 19th century, it's just a time of such incredible decline uh, for Ireland. And I suppose the empire opens up in new ways, too, yeah. uh, that its, its significance is, is on the wane uh, entirely. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the street we're actually broadcasting from here is, is kind of, it's Thorncastle Street. It's, it's kind of famous as for many, many centuries, actually. It was the only kind of habitable place in, in, in this area because obviously this was all swampland. It was mm-hmm. all kind of reclaimed over the past uh, 200 years or so, but could, or two, 200, 300 years. Could you talk a bit about how much the sort of vista of Ringsend, Irish Town, Sandy Mounts, that whole area has changed over the yeah, past number well, of centuries? I mean, the way I walked down here, I came over uh, the bridge you talked about earlier on, the McMahon Bridge, uh, and I turned onto the street there at the, the Yacht Pub. Just mm-hmm. I love the Yacht Pub because it's mm-hmm. there's another civil war we don't talk about so much, which is the, the two rowing clubs in this area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, has, it has an oar from each one, which is you know very admirable. But as I walked down that street, I passed the Herbert Sims flats of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So that great public housing drive. Uh, Herbert Sims was the first housing architect in the history of Dublin City Council, appointed in 1932. Mm-hmm. And those are his flats yeah. uh, just up the street. Uh, from here so and they're yeah, stunning aren't they? they're beautiful yeah, yeah. beautiful kind of art deco 1930s mm. flats i love the view of them that you get from way back uh at you know grand canal dock there when you're looking mm-hmm. down towards them but yeah i mean that that uh that history of of housing that's present there so other parts of the city you know stony batter uh harold's cross portobello you have those beautiful little artisan cottages the dublin artisan dwelling company you don't really get them down here which is interesting mm-hmm. Uh, but you do get those beautiful kind of later 1930s flats. And it's fascinating to think who would have been living in them, isn't it? Yeah. In the 1930s, yeah. who, who went into them initially. Probably very strong connections between those flats and, and the local industries of, of dock workers and port workers. Absolutely. Um, I think you mentioned the, the coup of bringing Gandon, but one of the other kind of great engineers who defined the, the shape of Dublin as we see it today is someone whose name I know you love. It's uh, Blinden Bloodstoney. <laughs> engineers don't, get their, don't no. get their rightful place in the history of this city, but you know, Park Neville, uh, there's a name no one knows. Park mm-hmm. Neville was the engineer who introduced the clean water system uh, to Dublin, the Vartry Water Scheme, uh, and built the fruit and veg market uh, mm-hmm. there by Smithfield. Fantastic. Uh, and after Park Neville, my favourite Dublin engineer is Binden Bloodstoney. It's a great name. Mm-hmm. And Stony, uh, Blood Stony Road or, is not far from here. Uh, and I remember, I remember looking at that name growing up and thinking, what happened there? Mm-hmm. It must be something awful. So like <laughs> medieval, horrible place. Because <laughs> beside it is Misery Hill. Misery so Hill, yeah. Misery yeah. Hill and Blood Stony Road. And I thought there has to be some correlation between them. And then I discovered this incredible uh, awfully born engineer, Bindon Bloodstoney. His name is on the O'Connell Bridge. Uh, he designed that bridge. It's the Carlisle Bridge. And he also designed the Diving Bell. And that's something everyone knows to pass, right there mm. by the, the Sam Beckett Bridge. Strange looking kind of orange contraption, but that was used to build the, the Liffey Walls. And I love that it's still there because when you don't have a lot of industrial heritage, as we don't, isn't it beautiful to pass something uh, every day that is a tribute in its own way to, to working mm-hmm. people and to the work that they did? You know, when you're driving into Belfast and you see Samson and Goliath. Mm-hmm. H&W, you know, the massive, massive cranes uh, of Harland and Wolf. There's a real pride in Belfast in them. In Dublin, we've so little industrial heritage. We've had to champion two chimneys. <laughs> not, not even two Good particularly chart. spectacular. Maybe not a very popular thing to say in this part of the world. But, you know, these two red and white chimneys have run away as a symbol of the city. And I always say the diving bell 
mm-hmm. for me is the great Dublin symbol that there is. I mean, we're def- we define ourselves by the Liffey, don't we? I mean, people in Rings End and East Wall, you know, the north side, south side thing, they talk about each other like they live light years away. Yeah. They live four minutes, five minutes away <laughs> from one another. But if the Liffey is so important in our identity, in our lives and how the city developed, the thing that built the Liffey walls just sitting there to me is extraordinary. You can go right underneath it. Mm-hmm. It's Ireland's smallest museum. Um, when you're under it, the panels tell you how men worked in it, how they pumped air uh, down into it. It's hollow. So they mm-hmm. literally worked on the Liffey floor, on the floor of the river uh, and constructed the, the Liffey walls from there. And it's just it's just an amazing thing to see. Absolutely. You'd be strung up for disrespecting uh, disrespecting <laughs> the chimneys in Sandy Mount anyway. <laughs> but yeah, just... In well, terms I know, I know there's a lot of anger <laughs> in this part of the world, quite rightly, um, that Bohemians and my good friend Daniel Lambert put the chimneys <laughs> on a jersey. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, know, I know they very much hold a special place in the heart of all uh, Shelburne fans. <laughs> yeah, obviously the, the, the birthplace of both Rovers and Shelburne, um, yes. as we've covered on, on previous episodes. But you were talking there about the... The, the role of the river in defining the defining city, the identity of, of the city. And obviously it is four or five minutes nowadays, but of course it wasn't as readily navigable in, in, in times past. And that yeah. was kind of, that, that kind of played into, I suppose, the importance of the river. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really, you know, the, the Dublin port company that's been established in, in recent years, one of the things they've tried to do, and I think this is a brilliant idea, is to bring back the Liffey Ferry. Mm-hmm. And it was it was last time I took it just before COVID. It was two euros. Mm-hmm. You're only on it now for about like seven or eight minutes. Mm-hmm. But it's still an, it's an amazing experience to go out in the Liffey Ferry uh, and to see Dublin from that different angle because things that are familiar, things you walk by all the time, they look totally different. You know when you're out yeah. there on the Liffey itself, and you have a new appreciation for the construction of the Liffey walls and everything else. But I mean, the Liffey Ferry continued as a, a daily part of people's lives into surprisingly recent times. The, the Tom Clark Bridge mm-hmm. really did away with the, with the need for, for the Liffey Ferry. But I like the idea of, of trying to bring it back. I know Frank Hopkins, who's a, a great local historian in this part of the world, he's been doing tours on the Liffey Ferry and I hope now that they'll, they'll bring them back soon. Yeah, I believe they were. I was actually booked on it uh, not that long ago. It was cancelled due to, due to high seas. But uh, yeah, hopefully see it back in full flight soon. Yeah, because there's nothing on the, like it. It's... It's mad how little is on the Liffey yeah. on a given day, you know, and if you if you stand on a bridge like the Beckett Bridge, you might see that single red boat, you know, that tourist mm-hmm. boat that goes up and down and you might see the St. Patrick's Rowing Club and that's yeah. kind of it really. And there's, there's nothing else really on the river anymore. So the idea of people getting out in the Liffey, maybe for the first time and seeing it in that way with someone like Frank, I think that's that's really special. And how does that contrast with the Dublin of even 100 years ago? I mean, 100 years ago, the, well, I mean, it's extraordinary to think how many bridges have been built in the city mm-hmm. in recent times. So off the top of my head, the Sean O'Casey Bridge, the Millennium Bridge, the, obviously the Sam Beckett Bridge, the Tom Clark Bridge. There's so many new bridges mm-hmm. across the Liffey. But it been common, common practice in, you know, in the Dublin of the 1920s, 30s, 40s to have queues of people to take ferries across yeah. the River Liffey. So, yeah, when I, when I took it, people were nervous getting on it. I found that interesting. Yeah. There was a fear off the river in some ways because it's unfamiliar to us mm-hmm. in the way I suppose earlier generations of Dubliners uh, had a relationship with the Liffey that, that we may not have anymore but if you do take a boat tour of the Liffey but it's tidal so it, it varies very dramatically over the course of the day you know how up and down it is but everyone at least once in their lives should take a boat tour on the Liffey and go under the O'Connell Bridge it's, it's an extraordinary achievement uh, it's mm-hmm. an extraordinary feeling and it's an extraordinary achievement as well I mean Bindon's Bloodstoney's Bridge it's as wide as, wide as it is long you feel like you're under it forever. 
as mm-hmm. you're passing by and it's just just an incredible thing to experience just don't try and swim it no <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah well r- bridges are a slightly sore point in this part of well bridges <laughs> over the daughter specifically because uh so many of them have fallen down because that you know that we do i suppose forget how how powerful and capricious oh, yeah. uh, the rivers can be or waterways can be uh, but as i said it's you know it was a much bigger part of the lives of our, our ancestors totally yeah um, and i mean i'm thinking my my grandfather worked in the guinness brewery for oof, five decades of his life and i mean you're always envious as a guinness worker of the guys who worked on the barges it was just the dream job to have mm-hmm. in the brewery so that's another thing you would have seen on the liffey constantly you know as well as dock workers unloading cargo those li- those li- those guinness barges making their way down uh, from from up there at the Victoria Quay all the way down this far. So, yeah, it would have been amazing thing to watch the Liffey, you know, 40, mm-hmm. 50 years ago and to see all of that life on it. Yeah, or and indeed the Dodder. Um, the Dodder was a very well-used waterway uh, up until relatively recently. Absolutely, and I think capturing all those stories is now very important because some of that's been done by, I'm thinking, people like, like Declan and the Dock Workers Preservation Society, but they're just one group of workers, you know, who had mm-hmm. a relationship with, with the river, uh, the the work of capturing stories of the Liffey, the Dodder and beyond uh, is still there to be done. And speaking of preservation, I guess uh, one of the, the stories that's kind of been swirling around at Ring's End the last few weeks is is the, the sad fate of the of the Naveena, um, which has been in the in the graving dock there for, for years and years at Grand Canal Dock and unfortunately you started uh, listing heavily. Do you have any, any views on what should I, be done? Uh, only if we were only recently celebrating the, the centenary of the, the birth of Brendan Behan, who was a, a marvellous Irish speaker. In fact, mm-hmm. Behan in some ways was, was an, an even greater writer in the Irish language than he was in English. Uh, and someone sent me a picture of, of Brendan getting off the Naveena mm-hmm. uh, on, on the Aran Islands. It was such an important connection uh, between, you know, people talk about the mainland sarcastically mm-hmm. meaning over there, uh, but the, the, the mainland of the island of Ireland and, and, and the Aran Islands. And I would have loved to see it go to Galway. I would have loved to see it go to the museum in Galway because, yeah, that's where its heart was i think and it's a pity it sat there for so long it was finally sold for a euro some years ago and the plan was to turn it into a hotel but i think when it was clear why does everything have to be a hotel and when it was was clear that that wasn't going to happen i think we should have looked to the west in some ways and 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 tried to retire it there as 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 a as a historical um curiosity but yeah just the way in which it went and that beautiful facebook group that explores its history and people share personal stories about being on the navena it's just a sad end to a part of the, the island's history. And in some ways, the Irish language has never been more fashionable to me yeah, than it yeah. seems to be at the moment. And people are going back and reading all the great island memoirs on Tillanoch and all of that. Uh, this connection between the young Gwelgori, you know, of the past and the Iron Islands was such a beautiful thing. A friend, actually, a historian, his memory was being a kid dispatched to the Iron Islands and puking off the side of the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a legacy of kinds, of its kind, I suppose. Uh, do you think there's, I know it's a, it's a mixed and, and difficult question to answer, but do you think there's, there's a, a general disrespect for elements of our historical heritage? Um, and is that new or would you trace that yeah. back? If it's not instantly to... obvious what should be done with something, mm-hmm. we have a tendency to push it aside and hope someone has a better plan. And yeah, it's a real pity that the plan in that case was a hotel. I mean, the MV Killarney, which is up by the um, convention center, that's a bar and restaurant. That's done quite well in recent times. So that was always in better nick, though, than the Navena. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's something beautiful in a decaying boat in its own sense. It could have gone somewhere in Galway and been displayed in, in better condition than it was uh, left in Dublin. But 
yeah, it's just unfortunate that the, the first idea that seems to have come into the hive mind was to turn it into a hotel in, in, in some way. I don't understand why that was the only option. Yeah. And I, I think in some ways the, the best custodians of, of our heritage tend to be communities them, themselves. Totally, totally. Um, there was upset. There was real upset, yeah. I think, at uh, what happened to the, to the Neve. And there was real hope that there would be you know, some kind of uh, future for it that could honour the past. But yeah, I mean, it, it's mostly lost, I'm sure. But if parts of it could be salvaged and, and displayed in, in, in Galway or even on the islands, I think that's something that, that the islanders are certainly in favour of. Mm-hmm. I was just I was struck by what you're saying about walk, walking here earlier. Um, do you get the sense, a real kind of sense of the maritime history of this area as you approach it? Or has a lot of that kind of dissipated? It depends how you come down to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I were to walk down the Keys, uh, yeah, first of all, you see Gandon's Custom House. But if you're on the right side, if you're on this side of the river, you see that beautiful statue uh, of the, the dock worker. I love that statue. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. And, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant because it's just, an, it, it doesn't, it's not a named worker, it's a worker. So in many mm-hmm. ways, it's a tribute to the, to the entire community. Uh, you pass the Sean O'Casey Bridge, you know, someone who so evoked these communities uh, in his work. And the Dockers are always brilliant characters uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in O'Casey. No one's black and white in the Sean O'Casey play. Everyone's, yeah. everyone's kind mm-hmm. of grey, but they're, they're often these great kind of characters uh, mixed up in all parts of life. Then you come down further, of course, and you see the, the, the Liffey heads, and you see the old, the old warehouses, just so many yeah. old bonded warehouses and, and industrial buildings. Some of them are kind of reborn as, as coffee shops and all kinds of things, but other ones are just sitting there. And yeah, as you come down the Keys, the Diving Bell, of course, as we mentioned earlier on, you really do get a feeling of, of that, that heritage. As you come from the other side, not so much, no, but mm-hmm. it's, um, it's an interesting journey in its own way too when you, when you come down the other side and, and uh, you, come into, you come into Ring's End. Uh, from the other side, and that's real kind of tech land, isn't it? It's a, yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a new Dublin. So, yeah, what they call the, the, the silicon docks, mm-hmm. strange as that sounds. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, not as strange the sociology of it, I suppose, but when, when a community loses its sort of industrial raison d'etre, which has happened a lot in, in Dublin, mm. it's very difficult to kind of hold on to the community after that. Are there examples in Dublin of, of places where you think that's happened? It's very tough. Mm-hmm. It's very tough. And then history becomes this thing that's used uh, by community activists mm-hmm. as a means of trying to rebuild that kind of social cohesion in, in communities. So examples of that, I think, would be uh, just across the river, the East Wall History Project, Joe Mooney and people like that. Uh, yeah, when, when communities lose big pillars of their lives, economic pillars of their lives or, or social pillars of their lives, history and oral history and talking about that past is a way of, of harnessing, I suppose, a sense of community. But as time moves on, that becomes more and more difficult to do. So, yeah, in, in the living memory, it's the job of historians and community activists and other people to try and capture as much of that history as possible and to use it in a way that does build a kind of community identity uh, today. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's, communities are always in, in enormous flux in, in a lot of ways. But what stuns me is, is the number of people here in Ringsend and Irish Town who you know, trace their, their families back to those industrial yeah, it's roots. amazing, isn't it? I mm. mean, the, the nature of living in Dublin today is that you, you move a lot. You know, people are mm-hmm. really transient now and people, if they're buying property at all, they're buying it much, much later in life. So yeah. I've lived in, you know, I've lived in Crumlin, I've lived in Cabra. I've lived in both parts of the inner city. I've lived all over Dublin in, in just a couple of short years. So it's a lot harder for people, I think, to become actively involved in things like history in an area when they don't know how long they're going to be 
in it. I mean, a good example is Smithfield and Stony Bank. Mm-hmm. You had a very active local history group in that area in years past. The area became incredibly gentrified very quick yeah, like yeah. blindsided everyone i think what happened in in, in stony batter and that group more or less collapsed because none of them could afford to live there anymore. yeah so yeah i mean the transient nature of a lot of communities in dublin makes it difficult for local history work to do well but this area as you say for whatever reason it's extraordinary uh, ray town east wall irish town uh, a lot of families that have been here going back for a long long time mm-hmm. Are, are there parallels in, in the history of Dublin where where a lot of kind of work and labour and life was transient in the same way? Um, across the city, well, I think in the collapse of the cattle markets mm-hmm. and the collapse of, I mean, when you're up there at Hanlon's Corner and there's, some, there's a little memorial there, this was a side of the Dublin cattle market. It's just hard to believe it mm-hmm. uh, because of the scale of it in its, in, it, in its day. But yeah, the collapse of agriculture in the city, uh, slaughterhouses in the city, once very, very common, especially around the Liberties area. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the removal of livestock from the heart of the city, that was a big shock for people. And that moved further and further out. Uh, but I think nothing compares to containerization. Mm-hmm. And the great Lisa O'Neill, fantastic singer, uh, that song that she wrote, Rock the Machine, about containerization, a uh, machine with the strength of a hundred men can't feed and clothe my children. An incredible line. Mm-hmm. Really captured the emotional impact of a collapsing industry better than I think anyone has. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, very evocative and poignant song. Um, just before we wrap up, I suppose, do you, what would give you hope in terms of communities like Ringsend Irish Town, with your historical perspective, I suppose, being able to retain their identity and their cohesion so if you look at what happened with the diving bell which was kind of rusting and decaying and no one really knew what it was that was lifted into the position it's in now displayed all the information in it comes from former dock workers Mm -hmm. you know it comes from declan and the people around them and the dock workers preservation society so i think what's really really important it's not that the city council or the Dublin Port Company or other people say, we're going to go in there and we're going to use history to lift the community. They have to ask who in the community knows the history, who in the community is already gathering the history and work with those people. And I think in this part of the world, that's generally happened. You know, the people mm-hmm. who have led the emergence of very good local history work in this area are people like the Dublin Dock Workers Preservation Society that are already doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's about supporting people like that, supporting the work that's that's already happening, finding those people and, and getting behind them. Absolutely. And if you want to do that here in Ringsend Irish Town, you can join the Ringsend and District Historical Society. Uh, just find us on Facebook, just up and running the past few months. And uh, yeah, a lot of exciting projects planned for the the year ahead. Uh, Donald, thanks so much for peeling yourself off your sick bed to, jo- to join us. <laughs> I survived. <laughs> uh, absolute pleasure having you on. And uh, hopefully you come back and join us again. Uh, anything you're plugging at the moment? Or? No, not really. I'm, I'm taking a bit of flack, though, for, for not having a street from this area in the, the book, the, the History of Dublin and Twelve Streets. So it was a volume two. Uh, the good people of Inchcore and the good people of Ring's End have both guaranteed their place in it. Oh, believe me, there's, there's long memories here and they'll hold you to that. <laughs> Donald, thanks so much. That's all from the Community News Desk this week. My thanks to Tora Kelly and his guest, Donald Fallon. Also thanks to Dylan and Ronan on sound and editing, Leslie on admin, Jennifer on social media and Darren on the website. If you'd like to contact us here at Rick Radio, our email address is rickradio2020 at gmail.com. From me, Mick, take care and have a great week. Music